to be honest with you, but the Lord very graciously took Mary home early on on Saturday morning. Uh, Mary was not a difficult mother-in-law to speak well about. Some mother-in-laws are, but she was not a difficult mother-in-law to speak well about. She bore a very quiet, faithful, consistent testimony, unspectacular, not shouting, all that, all that sort of stuff. And even during the last uh, week of her life, uh, in the room, the side room, which was just beside the nurse's station, um, Mary, one of the kind of highlights of her life was when Billy Graham came to Sunderland. Her and her husband sang in the Billy Graham Crusade Choir. And she loved that. That was one of the things that she really, really loved. And so during the course of the last week, even when she was not able to speak or even unconscious at times, the girls were playing uh, those hymns, the Christian hymns, in the, quietly in the, in, the, in the room. And if you use your iPad and you use Spotify, you'll know you can put them on repeat. And so they were literally on repeat all the time. And the nurses had said uh, that they knew there was something different about this room. And they actually opened the door during the night so the nurses could hear the hymns singing during the night. So even in her last days of that journey towards heaven, she was able to be in a very quiet and good, consistent testimony to the Lord Jesus. So it was difficult, particularly for Janet and Christine, who sat with her mum for long, long hours. That's a difficult thing. If ever you've had to do that, folks, you'll know how difficult that is. But there was a sweetness about the thing as well as the Lord took her home. So so thank you for praying. Apologies, because I did have a... There's a little geographical point I want to make this morning. And I had got a map for my PowerPoint, but I've forgotten my PowerPoint adapter. So you'll just have to put up with me describing what we're going to try and illustrate. Let's read the scriptures then. We're going back to Luke's Gospel and we're going to uh, read it beginning in chapter number five. And we're going to start halfway through the chapter at verse number 16. Here's a word to impress people at parties big word that you can use that would press people. It's the word synoptic. Synoptic. Often you would hear clever preachers try to bamboozle you by saying that Matthew, Mark and Luke are the synoptic gospels and John's different. What they really mean is synoptic is a compound word of sin and optic. Sin means the same and optic means to see, right? Okay. So if you have the four gospels, Matthew, Mark and Luke, they tend to look at the Lord Jesus from the, a human point of view, witnessing what he's doing, right? And they, they're describing the Lord Jesus really from, from our standpoint. They're looking at him and Matthew says he's the, the king. That's what he'll talk about. Matthew will describe him and he'll emphasize how the Lord Jesus was a rejected king, but nevertheless he was the king. And you'll see large passages of, for example, the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5 is the, the charter of the kingdom, if you like, right? Mark will look at him as one who came to serve the Lord and he was the perfect servant of the Lord. The Lord had lots of servants. They were all imperfect, but the Lord Jesus served them perfectly. And Mark's a short gospel, but it's a packed full gospel. It really is. And if you read it, it just, and, and immediately, and, and, and it just goes on and on and on and on. And, on. and the Lord, Mark's saying, look, the Lord was the perfect servant. Luke looks at him really as the perfect man. And there's things about the Lord Jesus that, that Luke emphasises about that he was a real man. This is not some alien visit. And this is a real man. And so earlier in chapter 4, remember when he went into the wilderness and he fasted? It says this of the Lord Jesus. He hungered. He hungered. Right? So the Lord Jesus knew what it was to be hungry. And in John 5, he'll ask the woman as he sits by the well for 
for a drink of water. And he subjected himself to human uh, feelings like that. And that's what Luke will say. And one of the things we're just going to read at the minute is that he went in the wilderness and he, and he prayed. And he prayed, right? Even though he was the omnipotent God, he prayed. And so Luke emphasizes that. And, and the synoptic means Luke, Matthew, Mark, and Luke are looking at it from our point of view and they're looking at the Lord Jesus and they're called the synoptic gospels. John, however, he looks at it from God's point of view, the divine point of view, and it's almost as if he's looking down from heaven and seeing the Lord Jesus as the Son of God on earth. And so this is, the, 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 this is one of what the synoptic gospels are. Why am I saying that? Because this passage and other passages in Luke appear also in Matthew and Mark. So you can read about the same incidences in Matthew and Mark, and sometimes in John as well, but Matthew, Mark, and Luke often record the same things. And when I was a boy, um, a man gave me what was called the Parallel Gospels. It was a book. Um, and the, the Matthew, there was four columns, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, and the, the scriptures were written in parallel, so you could see what was in all all of the Gospels are in two Gospels or in three Gospels. And one of the slides I had was a, a snapshot of a, there's a website called the, Only, the Parallel Gospels and you can get the, you can get the, the passages on a, on a screen. So this passage also appears in Matthew 9 and Mark 2. So Matthew and Mark, Luke and John, they're like four big pieces of the jigsaw. Right, And each piece of the jigsaw has a glory in itself. But when you put the pieces together, you get the whole picture. So when we read here, you really should go back and you should really read Matthew 9 and Mark 2 and Luke 5. And that's why it's important to have time to read and study your Bible. Because if you don't take time to do it, you miss so much. So we're going to read here from... um, Luke's Gospel, chapter 5, and we're going to start at verse 16, even though um, I'm supposed to start at verse 17. I could have listened to John last Sunday for a lot longer than he spoke. Actually, I really, really enjoyed John. That was his first opportunity to speak to us, and I really, really enjoyed and got benefit from it. And he just he just skipped this line. He didn't skip it. He just didn't have enough time. Look what it says at the end. He withdrew himself into the wilderness, and he prayed and he prayed. And before we read our section this morning, we've discovered this, that the Lord Jesus, after doing some miraculous things, the, the draft of the fishes and the healing of the leper, he withdrew into the wilderness and he prayed. We've already said about the importance of the Lord Jesus praying. But the point I want to make here is he withdrew into the wilderness to pray. He's in a wilderness praying. Now, you can pray any time in any place, folks, right, okay? Because prayer is as much an attitude as it is an act, right, okay? So you can pray in the bus, and uh, if you're in the car, when my wife's driving, you'll pray in the car with your eyes open, and all that sort of thing. You can pray in different, you, know, you can have an attitude of prayer. But it's really clear that the Bible gives a Christian, not just Christians, but all godly people, encourages them to have a discipline of regular, definite, prayer times. That's one of the instructions of the word of God. And the Lord Jesus had very disciplined seven times in Luke's gospel. He's recorded as going apart to pray. So it's really important that we discipline our Christian life into having times of reading and times of praying. And he withdrew himself into the wilderness to, to pray. And withdrew means that he did it as a deliberate act, right? And it says he went into the wilderness to pray. The map I had was to show you where Capernaum is and where the wilderness is, right? 
because Capernaum's in Galilee. Galilee is beautiful. It's, it's verdant, it's green, it's hilly, it's, it's beautiful. And I, I mean, it almost reminds me of Scotland. Almost, right? Okay, it's so beautiful, right? There's no wilderness in Galilee. The wilderness is down south in Judea, right? Okay. So if the Lord Jesus is witnessing or working up in Capernaum and he withdrew himself to the wilderness to pray, it means he went to considerable inconvenience <laughs> to determine a place to pray. This wasn't a something like just, uh, okay, I've got five minutes, I'll just have a wee seat and I'll just pray for a wee while. You can do that. You can do that. I don't mean you can't, right? But the Lord Jesus thought, okay, I'm going to deliberately, specifically separate myself from whatever's going on and I'm going into the wilderness to pray and it's going to be some cost to me and it's going to be quite inconvenient to me. Why is that? Because it's a priority for him. It's a priority for him, right? Praying is a priority in the Lord Jesus' life. And we'll go down a little further on and we'll see that those who follow the Lord Jesus make following the Lord Jesus a priority in their Christian life. It's not a it's not a part of the Christian life. Being a Christian is a priority of the Christian life. It is the priority of the Christian life. And part of the priority of your Christian life is the priority of Bible reading and the priority of prayer. So he's gone some distance to pray. But he's gone to a wilderness to pray. But why would you go to the wilderness to pray? Eh? Well, it's free from distractions, isn't it? And it's free from interruptions and there's nothing to appeal to your flesh in the wilderness is there there's nothing to make you feel good in the wilderness there's nothing to appeal to you in the wilderness Uh, there's nothing that will build you your ego up in the wilderness is there there's plenty of folks to build your ego up when you stand up here to either preach or pray there is lots of things to build your ego up when you're praying in public you're listening for the amens and you're, and you're wanting somebody to come back. And, you know, there's lot. But see, when you go alone to pray, where there's no distraction and there's nothing to appeal to the flesh, that's when you really pray properly, isn't it, really? That's when it's just you and God and there's no distraction and there's no interruption. Whereas my phone is the world's worst distraction and interrupting for me. I, I cannot justify myself by keeping my phone beside me so as I can use it to make reference to my Bible when I'm reading. But when it buzzes, I always have a wee look to see what, what's coming in. It's a distraction, isn't it, really? Now, I'm not, I'm not coming hard, come down hard mobile phones. You just see what I'm saying? I'm saying that you know, there are times when it's really important to discipline yourself to go to a place where nothing else matters but praying because why? The Lord Jesus did that. So there's actually a lot been happening earlier on in this chapter. And we're now going to read this chapter. And I've got three big Christian thoughts to leave with you, okay? The first one is the Christian principle, forgiveness of sins. Forgiveness of sins. That'll be in the story of the man that's let down through the roof. Forgiveness of sins, right? And we'll look at that a little bit. And then we'll get to following Jesus, when we look at the instant of Levi, when the Lord calls the, the tax collector to follow him, right? That'll be my two. There's a third one later on in the chapter, which I would have loved to have covered, but I won't be able to do it. Fasting. 
I, I would have loved to have talked about fasting because it's a greatly ignored Christian discipline in the 21st century, to be quite honest with you. And I would have loved it, but I won't talk about that. I'll resist that temptation. So let's start reading. We've read about the Lord being in the wilderness and he prayed. And now he's come back. Now he's come back. And it says this. And it came to pass as a certain day, as he was teaching, that there were Pharisees and doctors of the law sitting by, which were come out of every town of Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem, and the power of the Lord was present to heal them. Simple, simple um, quote here. The Lord makes Capernaum on the northwest corner of the Sea of Galilee his home, really his base for a lot of his ministry. It was, we call him, you've seen the, 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 the videos, Jesus of Nazareth, right? And that was where he was brought up. But we've seen in chapter 4 what happened when the Lord's embarked on his public ministry in Nazareth. They wanted to take him over the brow of the hill to kill him. So the Lord changes his centre of gravity from Nazareth to Capernaum, very geographic. And that was, again, one of the maps I was going to show you. It's a bit further up and it's in Capernaum. It's very strategically placed, Capernaum. And it says in one place, it says, and it says um, in Matthew 9, he passed over and came unto his own city. So the Lord Jesus makes his city Capernaum. And actually, if you read in um, in in the ESV it says this it was reported that he no in Mark 2 it says it was reported that he was my authorised version says in the house the actual translation is at home so this instance we're about to read about didn't just happen in some random house in a random town this is happening in the Lord's base in the Lord's house the house that he's made his home while he's in Capernaum and when you see what happens to this house You'll see that he was actually prepared to suffer considerable damage and cost to his house to see the blessing for a man and complains nothing at all about the damage that's done to the building that he's in. So, so it says this, the Pharisees and the doctors came from Galilee and Judea and Jerusalem. And again, the map was going to show you that he's attracting people from a long distance, right? People are coming a long way to see and to hear him. But this group that we've got here, Pharisees and doctors of the law, we're going to see in a few minutes that they were coming to see him with a motive that was anything but pure. Anything but pure. They're wanting to find fault and they're wanting to discredit and in the end they'll plan to destroy. Destroy. So the Lord has got a, he's got a mixed audience, if you know what I mean. He's got people who really want to hear him and want to be blessed by him. And amongst them, there's a, there's a what the New Old Testament calls a mixed multitude, really. There's people there with an alternative motive and there's people there with looking to discredit and destroy. And it would be true, folks, that it's really difficult to get an audience that's totally pure, isn't it, really? Isn't it? Really difficult to get an audience that's totally pure coming for the same reason. And when we have folks coming to hear the word of God, I don't just mean even in the gospel, but other things, people come with different reasons, don't they? You know, I, I can think of people that have a special ministry to come and hear people preach, and it's their, it's their ministry to bring the preacher down a peg or two. That's what they do. They try and find, you know, so, you know, you need to be, it says this, and the Lord was present to heal them. Right? Actually, some of the manuscripts just says the power of the Lord was present to heal. To heal. There's no them involved. It's not the Pharisees. It's just the power of the Lord. So let's keep reading. 
And behold, men brought in a bed a man which was taken with a palsy or paralyzed. And they sought means to bring him in and to lay him before him. So they're coming to the Lord's, the place where the Lord has made his home. They're coming to the Lord's house, right? Okay. Isn't it lovely that when people have got a need, they know where to go. <laughs> they know where to go. And it wasn't, they weren't just going because there was a multitude. They were going because this was the place where the Lord Jesus was known to, to be based. Wouldn't it be lovely if we had a Christian testimony that meant when people in our neighborhood were in need, they would know where to go. If they needed comfort and they needed help and they needed support and they needed maybe even some spiritual input, that they, they would not understand it, but they would at least know where to go. I think Christian homes, folks, are really, really important. I really do. To make our home a place of real Christian atmosphere, where Christian things are not just the add-ons, but are actually the whole atmosphere of where they are. And when people come to our house, they know that this is a Christian home. This is a place where the, the Lord is and you can do that in a variety of different ways can you really you can we have lots of texts up in our wall and we just got one on the inside of the door so at least when the postman or somebody opens the door at least they'll see the gospel text i'm not saying be ostentatious i'm just saying isn't it good when our christian life is so real to us that our home becomes a, a place where people can come if they if they need christian help it says this and they sought means to bring him and lay him before him. And when they could not find by which way they might bring him in because of the multitude, they went into the housetop and they let him down through the tiling with his couch in the midst before Jesus. So here's four men. And they've got a friend who's in deep need. And they know where the answer is for this need. And these four men, they work together to take their friend Jesus. Isn't that lovely? No, it would be, I suppose one man could have carried him. Eh? Isn't that right? You know, if, 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 if he was a paralyzed man and things had withered away, maybe a, a big strong man like Noah, he could pick me up and carry me a distance, couldn't he? He really could. Young man with, with strength could do that. He's looking a bit doubtful, but he could. I'm sure you, I'm sure you could. But here's four men. And when they're working together, it becomes an easier task for them, doesn't it? There's, a, there's a, an encouragement and a strength that becomes in fellowship when we do things together. Isn't that right? Now, we could do things with less people or alone, but when we actually do it together, it makes a big, big difference. There's shared burden. And in the end, we'll see that there's shared joy when the man uh, picks up his bed and walks that everybody of the four benefits now we've no indication whether it was their initiative or his initiative right he might have called four of his friends together and said could you take me to jesus and he knew he had four good friends that would do that for him or maybe it was just they thought well this young this man needs the lord so we'll pick him up and we'll take him i don't think there's any indication as to which way i think later on because the Lord says your sins are forgiven you. Obviously the man who was sick of the palsy had a movement in his heart himself. I really believe that. I really do. But, but, but can, you, can you see what I'm saying? This is something that you really need to do together. 
And if one of the three had decided, now do you know what? They can manage on their own. Right? Maybe they could. But it would be a lot more difficult. But it would be a lot more difficult. And not when it would be a lot more difficult, you would actually lose out on the blessing of seeing the Lord at work in that way. What am I trying to say? I'm trying to say, folks, isn't it great when we do things together? Isn't it? You know, we can do things on our own, and we can do things with less people, and we can, where two or three are gathered, so as long as there's two or three, that doesn't matter. It's, that's not what, I don't think that's what this is saying. There's a great, tremendous gospel application in it, isn't it? We know people who need the Lord, don't we? We, we, we can think of them. And, and hopefully this afternoon, we'll go down and see um, Mar- Marina and, and, and Peter, and maybe try and get them to come. They haven't come in a while, but... They need to hear the gospel, right? But they need people to help them to hear the gospel, don't they, really? They need people to sit with them and, and have a cup of tea with them and, and encourage them. And There's actually something for us all to do when it comes like that, isn't it? And so if you think about it in the assembly context, the assembly gospel effort is not the, it's not the domain of a few people that are keen on that sort of thing, is it? It's not. It's something that we all do together. And it's, we've all got a corner of the, the, the bed to carry. And we've all got a common goal in our heart to bring the man to Jesus, haven't we? And when we do it together, we take a load of burden off the other people that are doing it and we get the same, we share in the joy that comes when we do that. And can you, can, without going too far, you, you get what I'm saying, don't you, really? That when we have an assembly gospel effort there's some things that some people don't do and some people do it but we're not doing this we're doing this together and the more it is that do it together the more easy it is and the more joyful it, it becomes and i hope I, you don't think i'm being legalistic or hard but four men brought the man to jesus and they worked together and they let him down through the tile and with the couch into the midst before jesus and and there's when you tell the story to the kids you talk about you know again you need to know a little bit about architecture. Um, I meant to say this to you. If you're really interested in, in studying your Bible, again, when I was a young man, somebody gave me a book called Edersheim, The Life and Times of the Messiah. It's a heavy read, but it paints the culture and the background of the New Testament. And so when you when they talk about this house and letting down, down through the roof, he'll describe what a, a house is like there. It's a flat-roofed house with tiles and you can with stairs up the outside. And they used to let their... They used to dry their clothes in the top or, or, or sun themselves or have a barbecue or something like that in the top. I don't know if they had barbecues then. But you, you know what I mean. It was, a, it was a, a kind of public area on the top of their thing. And so it was tiled. And, and so they, these men were pulling the tiles apart and making a hole in the roof so as they could let them down to Jesus. Again, another simple point. Forgive me my, my simplicity. But these men weren't going to let any obstacle keep them back from bringing this man to Jesus. Here's a multitude. They could have said, up. Oh, you know what I'm like with Janet will tell you what I'm like with queues and crowds. If I go to the barber and there's somebody sitting in the chair, I'll go somewhere else. I wouldn't even sit and wait. You know? And you know what it's like? They could have come and looked at the multitude and said, nah, too busy. We'll never get close. Pointless. Right? No, 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 no. They could have looked at the stairs. Now, I've seen paramedics carry stretchers up and down stairs. It's a very difficult thing to do if you're carrying a stretcher. They've got modern equipment now, but getting somebody up and down stairs. And they could have looked at the stairs and thought, nah, too difficult. 
They could have got on the roof and they could have looked at the roof and said, now, what happens if we destroy this place? We might get any trouble. See, see the number of obstacles they were facing. But none of these obstacles were too difficult or too costly. The big thing was to bring this man to Jesus. Folks, there's lots of obstacles these days to bringing the gospel to people, isn't it? Or bringing people to the gospel. Lots of obstacles. Things we can easily make excuses of. Nah, nah, people are not interested. It's not that. I get all that. I've done it for 40 years, folks, right? Okay. But these men were so passionate about bringing a man to Jesus, they would let nothing stop them. Nothing stop them. So, and when he saw their faith, he said unto him, Man, thy sins are forgiven thee. Here's a question. When he saw whose faith? When he saw their faith, he said, thy sins are forgiven thee. Well, we know that it's more than one person's faith, right, okay? When he saw their faith. So the faith of the men that brought their friend to Jesus is something that the Lord sees and commends and blesses. No question about that. Isn't that right? When he saw their faith. And I think, folks, we need, as Christians, to exercise faith when we bring folks to the Lord Jesus. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. We need to have total confidence in the word of God. We need to bring people to hear the word of God with the absolute assurance that God will bless his word. Whatever he chooses to do, he'll bless it. He may not bless it immediately, but he will bless his word. God says he will never allow his word to return unto him void. Never. No exceptions. So it's never pointless. Never pointless to bring somebody under the sound of the word of God. Never, ever pointless. But here's what I'm thinking. Forgiveness. Okay? When he saw their faith, he said, son, thy sins are forgiven. So does that mean somebody can be forgiven because of somebody else's faith? Is that what it means? I don't think so, folks. Because the biblical truth of forgiveness is actually really, really clearly defined. Repent ye therefore and be converted that your sins might be blotted out. It's very clear that forgiveness of sins has conditions attached with it. It's got to have a knowledge... I had a whole section about forgiveness, but we're getting away. Andrew spoke to us on Thursday night, and if you didn't hear it on Thursday night, you should go and listen to it again, because it was, we were talking about sin and salvation and how important sin was. And he was talking very particularly about justification, right? And that's a very fundamental platform. But there's also an idea of forgiveness in sins as well. Justification, does, sin doesn't just mean guilt. It means offence. It means offence as well. You offend the person that you sin against, don't you? An offence has been caused. It's not just that you've done wrong and you're guilty. You've actually offended. So if you go to court having stolen, supposing I steal John's wallet and I go to Crown Court and I'm found guilty in the court, the judge can find me guilty or he can, or somebody, he can justify me or whatever. But who have I offended? I've not offended the judge, I've offended John. And what I need to do is go and ask John's forgiveness to restore the relationship, you see. 
So justification is so important, and you should, you should listen to that. But forgiveness means we've offended God. So what does David say? Against thee, thee only, have I sinned. I remember offending my dad. I could tell you a long story about offending my dad, but I remember really disobeying my dad and not just deserving punishment. I remember offending him in such a way that I had to go and ask his forgiveness. Even though he punished me, I still had to act. The the relationship was broken, right? Okay. So there's got to be something on the part of the one who's asking for, or who is being forgiven. There's got to be a knowledge of their offence and a willingness to turn away from their offence and a desire to have their relationship restored. Whole big section in that. We don't have time to go. So when when I see when he saw their faith, I think it includes the man. I think it includes the man on the bed as well. Because the Lord can't just forgive willy-nilly. It's not his character. And again, we could go back and have a whole section on you do realise that God is essentially a forgiving God. It's God's nature and God's desire to forgive. He takes no pleasure in the death of, of the wicked. He's a gracious, ready to pardon. The Bible's caught, even the Old Testament's constantly full of God's desire to, to grant forgiveness and, and, give, and, and, and be restored to the broken relationship. God wants that all the time. And so when I think when it says when, when he saw their faith, I think it's got to include the man that was lying in the bed as well. I think he's got to have a knowledge of his own weakness and sinfulness. And I think he's got to have a knowledge of his need to be restored to God. And I think he's got to have a desire to be restored to the Lord. So you can't go. Well, the next section will prove to us that the only person who can forgive sins is the Lord. If I stole John's wallet, who's the only person that can forgive me for speaking? Sheila can't forgive me for stealing John's wallet because I've offended, I've offended and sinned against John. So in sins, we can sin against each other and we can forgive each other. And that's really important, isn't it? But the essential element of salvation in the gospel is we've offended God and we need forgiveness from God. That's the issue of the gospel. The gospel is not life enhancement. Although if your life is not better after you've trusted the Lord, there's something wrong. The issue is we've offended God. We've disobeyed him. We need justification. We need redemption. We need forgiveness from God. We need God to forgive us so that the relationship can be restored. So I can't go to anybody other than God to ask for forgiveness. Isn't that right? And nobody else can give me forgiveness other than God. I mean, if I stole John's wallet, the only person that can forgive me for stealing John's wallet is John. Andrew can't forgive me. I can't go to Andrew and say, Andrew, will you go to John and tell him, I'm sorry. And he'll say, I'll, I'll do that so you're forgiven. Not at all. Not at all. And so it says this, and when the scribes and the Pharisees began to reason within themselves, who speaketh these blasphemies? Who can forgive sins but God alone? They're getting something right. Anyway, aren't they? They're getting something right. So who can forgive your sins? God alone. For there is one mediator, for there is one God, and there is one mediator between God and man, the man Christ Jesus. And whom is redemption, even the forgiveness of our sins? And through this man, in the, the Acts of the Apostles, is preached unto you forgiveness of sins. But when Jesus perceived their thoughts... Now, they may have been discussing with each other, right? They began to reason, saying, but 
it's more to do with what they're thinking in their heart that the Lord's interested in. What do we learn from this? Simple. Again, my simplicity, folks, forgive me. Jesus could read their mind and read their thoughts. He's omniscient. He's omniscient. He knows everything. We won't get to Levi, but let's just finish this section and then we'll finish. He answered unto them, saying, Why reason you in your hearts? Whether is it easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Rise, take up thy bed, and walk? There's a question. What's it easier to say to somebody? Your sins are forgiven, or you're a paralyzed man, take up your bed and walk? What's the easiest thing to say to them? It's the easiest thing in the world to say, Your sins are forgiven. How do you know? Nobody knows. Isn't that right? Your sins are forgiven you. But, you know, just stay in your bed. Right? It's the easiest thing in the world for somebody just to say something that nobody can prove. Isn't that right? Now, we know the Lord Jesus can forgive sins. Okay? Because of his death on the cross, the sacrifice that he made, through this man is preached unto us the forgiveness of sins, and this man's sins are forgiven based on the work of Jesus Christ and his faith in Jesus Christ. That's why I laboured the point that I think the faith was more than just to do with the men. I think it's his faith in Jesus Christ and the work of the Calvary that he comes into good of because the Lord Jesus says, your sins are forgiven you. But look what it says. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power on earth to forgive sins. He says to the sick of the palsy, I say unto you, take up your bed and go to your house. And immediately he rose up before them and took it up up where he lay and departed to his own house. (laughs) In other words, listen, I just want you to know that I'm not just saying things. I can do what I say I can do. This is me, the son of God that he spoke about, uh, the one that was sent from God and looked for. This is me doing what I came to do, forgive sins. And you know what I'm going to do? If you're any doubt about that, I'll just prove it to you that I've done, I've done the big thing by doing a smaller thing. And he's doing a smaller thing to prove the bigger thing. So that they had no doubt about it. We won't talk about Levi. I would love to talk about Levi and love to talk about following Jesus Christ, but never mind. Last verse. And they were all filled. They were all amazed. Look at the reaction of those that witness what God can do, what the Lord can do. Here's the reaction. Number one. They're amazed. Here's one, him, old one. It is no secret what God can do. What he's done for others, he'll do for you. With arms wide open, he'll pardon you. It is no secret what God can do. Folks, without exaggeration, in this little hall, We've seen God do do things that amaze us. I don't mean fire from heaven and people standing up and walking. We've seen people's lives transformed by the power of the gospel. We've seen souls saved through the power of the gospel. We've seen lives completely transformed by Jesus Christ. We've seen burdens lifted and we don't look for people rising up and taking their bed and walk. But nevertheless, we're amazed at what God has done. And inside these wee four walls, not because there's anything special about the four walls, folks, we at Bensham can see God do amazing things, can't we? We believe that with all our hearts. We do. They were amazed. Number two, and they glorified God. What does that mean? They were praising people. Christians should be praising people, you know that. 
And praise can take a variety of different forms. See this row here? Their idea of praise is completely different to mine's. Right? Completely different. The style of music, all that sort of stuff, completely different to mine. But it may, doesn't mean that their style of praise is any less legitimate than mine's. It doesn't. The issue is this. We're praising the Lord. Isn't that right? It's more to do with our heart than actually the mechanics of the thing. They prayed, so this is what happens when God works. We're amazed. We praise. And they were filled with fear. What does that mean? Does that mean they were terrified that they were going to be judged by this one that were in the present? They were in the, no, they're not terrified at the prospect of judgment. They're just awed and taken in with a glory. And they just have a reverence and an awe for the one that's done the work. Folks, Christians should be the people most reverent of all. Reverence should be one of our fundamental characteristics. We can talk about that in detail if you like, what reverence is. But what I'm talking about is our world is full of irreverence. Full of irreverence. Christian life now is full of irreverence. And they were filled with awe. They were amazed. They praised. But they were reverent. They were reverent. The last thing is this. And they saying, we have seen strange things. It doesn't mean unusual, weird things. Do you know what it means? It means things beyond our expectation. This is the Lord's doing. And it is marvellous in our eyes. They were testifying. They weren't quiet. They weren't secret. They were saying, look what the Lord's done. What he's done for others he'll do for you. What he's done for me, he'll do for you. What he did last week, he can do again. We need to know him, don't we, better. And we need to trust him better. And we need to look for him to work in marvellous ways. Sorry for the the doozy style preaching, but never mind. I've gone on too long, let's pray. Lord, thank you for such a wonderful saviour. We've never taken up a bed and walked, but we've known the sins forgiven in our life. And we want to be like these people. We want to glorify thee, praise thee. We want to testify for thee. And we want to take our own corner of the bed, Lord, and carry others to come to know the Lord. So help us, Lord, to do that, even today. Later on, as we gather for the gospel, as we bring people to let them down through the roof, may we see thee at work. We give thanks and ask for thy blessing now in the Lord's name. Amen. So now I have to ask for forgiveness from you. I've offended you by going out over the time. So please, forgiven one another, even as Christ forgave you. So please forgive me for that.